This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is communal and global outreach. In the first half, we will hear Elder Dallin H. Oaks in his BYU devotional address entitled Racism and Other Challenges. Then in the second half, we will hear a BYU forum address from Dambisa Moyo entitled The Macroeconomic, Geopolitical, and Social Trends Defining Our World. The responsibility of an apostle of the Lord to try to be helpful to the followers of Christ is a very heavy one. I share an experience that helped me develop my feeling about that subject. Thirty-six years ago, on the day after I was called to the Quorum of the Twelve and sustained in General Conference, I was alone in my home in Provo contemplating the significance of that calling. Our youngest daughter, Jenny, then only eight years old, entered the room. As I looked at her with all the love I felt for her, I realized that she was only one of hundreds of thousands of little girls throughout the world, also children of our Heavenly Father, whom I was now responsible to try to help as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Contemplating that reality, I could not contain my feelings and did something I have rarely done in my adult years. I wept. My brothers and sisters of the rising generation of the restored Church of Jesus Christ, I love you. I want to help you. Since I cannot meet with you individually, as I would love to do, I must try to help you through teaching correct principles and trying to help you follow them. Love is fundamental. When President Kevin J. Worthen spoke to this student body seven weeks ago, he expressed an important hope which I share. Quote, I hope that in the coming year each of you can feel in greater measure God's love for you individually. At those times when you wonder if anyone cares or if anyone should care, I invite you to ask God what He thinks of you, what He really thinks of you. End of quote. I remind you that the love of God for His children and the love of His Son, the Savior, who atoned for our sins, are incomprehensible. Joseph Smith helped us understand and apply this love in our own lives. He taught, quote, While one portion of the human race is judging and condemning the other without mercy, the great parent of the universe looks upon the whole of the human family with a fatherly care and parental regard. He views them as his offspring and without any of those contracted feelings that influence the children of man. End of quote. That teaching, together with the Lord's commandment to love your enemies and pray for them that despitefully use you, have application in all political campaigns—I will say no more of elections—except to reaffirm the political neutrality ex- described in our recent letter. I urge you to treat others with civility and respect and vote. These are times when we all need love and its accompanying concern for others. How are you handling the COVID-19 pandemic? 
Please do your part in what is required in these unusual circumstances. And remember that some of the burdensome restrictions, including even the wearing of masks, are not only for your immediate protection, but also for the well-being of those around you. The personal threats and educational and economic effects of COVID-19 surely heighten everyone's anxiety. And as you know, anxiety on other subjects is also comparatively high among young people. This is another challenge with which I would like to be helpful. Just a year ago, I gave a talk on that subject at BYU-Hawaii, reviewing national and our own experience with anxiety among college-age students. For example, here at BYU and elsewhere in our church education, higher education institutions, there are large increases in the numbers seeking counseling or mental health services. Our professional counselors observe that anxiety often leads to doubt and despair. Whatever the cause of large increases in anxiety and associated mental health diagnoses, our first line of defense is always our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust in His promises of peace and in the cleansing that His Atonement makes possible. Instead of being swept along in the anxiety and fear that's characteristic of your generation, rely on the assurances of a loving Heavenly Father. Rely on the counsel of His loving Son, a Savior, who has assured us that if ye are prepared, ye shall not fear. The Lord promised that in the midst of prophesied destructions and tragedies, he will protect the righteous. And now I move to another concern of your rising generation and others as well. I speak of the problem of racism. You will recall President Nelson's great teachings in General Conference on this subject, and perhaps my own plea that Latter-day Saints unite to root out racism. To do that, we must have clear thinking about how current events should be analyzed and acted upon in view of this nation's shameful history of black slavery. We need to understand how the Founders postponed resolving that moral issue to obtain the ratification of the Constitution for the creation of this nation. As the protests of last summer gained momentum and support across the country, Various groups, particularly in the South, began tearing down or replacing statues of prominent figures associated with slavery. Some institutions changed names to refrain from honoring persons who had any connection with slavery. A small number of persons even took up that cry on this campus, calling for changing the name of some buildings or even the name of Brigham Young University. Many were distressed at these attempts to erase prominent figures from our history, even history that we would be pleased to change if we could. I wondered, are the advocates and actors in these efforts aware of what they are attempting to erase? For reasons that every serious student of American history understands, 
Even the Constitution of the United States is stained with concessions to slavery that were made in order to get the whole document ratified. Those textual stains were, of course, removed by the amendments following the Civil War, which cost hundreds of thousands of lives throughout the North and the South. I cannot condone our now erasing all mention and honor of prominent leaders like George Washington, who established our nation and gave us our Constitution because they lived at a time with legal approvals and traditions that condoned slavery. As I struggled with that question, I chanced to be reading some speeches of Winston Churchill. For many years, Churchill warned against the evils of the Nazi government in Germany. He was a minority voice, resisted or resented by many, and it blocked his political career. Then, when many of his predictions came true, and England and France were being defeated in the first year of World War II, Churchill was made prime minister. England stood fast for more than two years until the U.S. was compelled to enter the war. In that critical period, many of Churchill's associates and newly converted supporters advocated his taking punitive measures against those who had contributed to the unprepared, precarious position in which the British found themselves. In that setting, Churchill spoke these words in the House of Commons in June 1940. Quote, There are many who would hold an inquest in the House of Commons on the conduct of the governments and of parliaments during the years which led up to this catastrophe. They seek to indict those who were responsible for the guidance of our affairs. This also would be a foolish and pernicious process. Of this, I am quite sure that if we open a quarrel between the past and the present, we shall find that we have lost the future. End of quote. I find great wisdom in that counsel. Let us not open a quarrel between the past and the present, lest we jeopardize our attempts to improve our future. This is our current state. We share our history and enjoy the advantages of our constitutional government and the prosperity of this nation. The predecessors of many Americans of different backgrounds made great sacrifices to establish this nation, whatever those sacrifices of freedom, property, or even life. Let us now honor them for what they have done for us and forego quarreling over the past. Ours is the duty to unite and improve the future we will share. On this same subject, I was impressed with the insights of one of your fellow BYU students, Luke Lyman, published in a Deseret News opinion piece a month ago. Lyman wrote that his, your, generation, quote, have that genuine and burning yearning to help those in need, to make the world a better place, to stand up for something. But, he wrote, we were not given the tools to discover the right way to do so. 
He noted his generation's undying devotion to reason, but observed that the thoughtless desecration of multiple monuments and the broader defamation of the Founding Fathers hardly demonstrates a respect for reasoned discourse. End of quote. The rising generation's increasing departure from organized religion is well known. Thus, your fellow student continued, quote, We have rejected the two pillars of Western civilization, faith and reason. He concludes persuasively that your, quote, rash but confident screams for justice ought to be understood as cries for help more than anything else. End of quote. Cries for help should be heard, and in this setting there are three obvious helps. Inspiration, education, and clear thinking. That combination is surely to be preferred over symbolic actions that accomplish nothing but a bow to the cause of political correctness. Let us apply that combination to subjects that have occupied much of our news and dialogue for the last six months. The recent nationwide protests were fueled by powerful feelings that this country suffers from and must abolish racism. Let us consider what racism is, some of its history and evil effects, and its separate manifestations in civil law and policy. But first I refer briefly to the incident that precipitated the current discussion on racism. The shocking police-produced death of George Floyd in Minnesota last May was surely the trigger for these nationwide protests whose momentum was carried forward under the message of Black Lives Matter. Of course Black Lives Matter. That is an eternal truth all reasonable people should support. Unfortunately, that persuasive banner was sometimes used or understood to stand for other things that do not command universal support. Examples include abolishing the police or seriously reducing their effectiveness or changing our constitutional government. All these are appropriate subjects for advocacy, but not under what we hope to be the universally accepted message, Black Lives Matter. Now I speak of the subject that commands our attention, racism. Dictionaries typically define racism as involving the idea that one's own race is superior to others and has the right to rule over them. This idea has led to many racist laws and administrative policies. Some religious people have sought to justify practices of racism by references to the Bible. As I will discuss later, nevertheless, the proper understanding of scriptures, ancient and modern, and recent prophetic statements help us see that racism as defined is not consistent with the revealed Word of God. We know that God created all mortals, and we are all children of God. Moreover, God created us with the differences that identify races. Therefore, any 
personal attitudes or official practices of racism involve one group whom God created exercising authority or advantage over another group God created, both groups having God-given qualities they cannot change. So understood, neither group should think or behave as if God created them as first-class children and others as second-class children. Yet that is how racism affects thinking and practice toward others. Latter-day Saints must remember that all such attitudes and official practices were outlawed for us by the Lord's 1833 revelation to the prophet Joseph Smith, quote, that it is not right that any man should be in bondage one to another, end of quote. With this background, I was thrilled to hear President Nelson include a powerful doctrinal condemnation of racism and prejudice in his talk at General Conference. He said, quote, I grieve that our black brothers and sisters the world over are enduring the pains of racism and prejudice. End of quote. That was his focus, but he expanded its impact by teaching this principle, quote, God does not love one race more than another, end of quote. Thus, we condemn racism by any group toward any other group worldwide. President Nelson emphasized that point by saying, quote, Favor or disfavor with God is dependent upon your devotion to God and His commandments and not the color of your skin. End of quote. Those authoritative statements from our prophet are very timely, but they simply clarify statements he's been making frequently in the past. Thus, at a press conference following his historic invited address to the annual convention of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, in 2019, President Nelson explained, quote, that a fundamental doctrine and heartfelt conviction of our religion is that all people are God's children. We truly believe that we are brothers and sisters, all part of the same divine family. End of quote. More recently, following the initial protests of the killing of George Floyd in Minnesota, he declared, quote, we join with many throughout this nation and around the world who are deeply saddened at recent events of racism and a blatant disregard for human life. We abhor the reality that some would deny others respect and the most basic freedoms because of the color of his or her skin. The Creator of us all calls on each of us to abandon attitudes of prejudice against any group of God's children. Any of us who has prejudice toward another race needs to repent. End of quote. These statements by our prophet are eloquently summed up by what he said in our B1 celebration on June 1st, 2018. Our gospel understanding of the true brotherhood of man and the true sisterhood of women inspires us with passionate desire to build bridges of cooperation 
instead of walls of segregation, end of quote. That is what we need for our future, for our nation, for our world, and for our individual divine destinies. So what do we do now? In General Conference, President Russell M. Nelson, quote, called upon our members everywhere to lead out in abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice toward any group of God's children, end of quote. President Nelson joined with three top leaders of the NAACP, Derek Johnson, Leon Russell, and the Reverend Amos C. Brown, in a powerful joint statement which declared that, quote, Solutions will come as we work to build bonds of genuine friendship and as we see each other as the brothers and sisters we are, for we are all children of a loving God. End of quote. As we go forward on that path, furthering our prophet's plea to abandon attitudes and actions of prejudice, we are helped by understanding what racism is and something of its history. There are many examples of racism in recent American history. The examples most familiarly reported by the media today are those that victimize black Americans. These include the police brutality and other systemic discrimination in employment and housing, publicized recently. Racism is still recognizable in official and personal treatment of Latinos and Native Americans. Less familiar in our day is America's history of racism against Asians, which began with Chinese immigrants who worked on the Transcontinental Railroad. It was not until a century ago that Native Americans were considered U.S. citizens, and Asians were allowed to apply for U.S. citizenship. Less than a century ago, the world experienced terrible tragedies, not usually called racism, but surely were extreme examples of this. The Holocaust, where German Nazis sought to exterminate Jews, is the most obvious. Another example of racism was the Hutu tribal majority in Rwanda, murdering about 800,000 of the Tutsi tribal minority. Other examples of ethnic cleansing or genocide based on ethnicity or tribal differences could be cited. Current efforts to identify and eliminate personal and official racism are best accomplished if we understand its relationship to scriptural references in the Old Testament and even the New Testament. As believers relying on scriptural history, we can be troubled and misled by Bible-recorded scriptural directions or traditions that may be viewed as racist or discriminatory by modern definition. For example, Within the tribes of Israel, only members of the tribe of Levi were acceptable for service in the temple. The Israelites as a whole were forbidden to marry the Canaanites and some others of surrounding lands. 
The direction for Jews not to associate with Samaritans was because of their partial descent from non-Israelite peoples. Most importantly, the gospel was not to be taught to Gentiles, non-Israelites. Jesus himself affirmed that restriction in strong language, quote, not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs, end of quote, but then made an exception for a faith-filled mother. During his mortal ministry, Jesus reversed the prohibition against associating with the Samaritans, and by revelation after his mortal life, he revoked the prohibition against taking the gospel to the Gentiles. But these and other restrictions remain in scriptural history. Using current definitions, some might call such divine actions and prophet-taught principles racist. But God, who is the loving Father of all nations, tribes, and ethnicities, cannot be branded as racist for his dealings with his children. Often the reasons for his plan are not known or understandable to mortals. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, he said through the prophet Isaiah, neither are your ways my ways. Some have rejected some element of God's plan as unreasonable according to cultural norms they could understand or accept. Others who have accepted God's plan have mistakenly relied on cultural norms to provide reasons God has not revealed. Thus, both non-believers and believers can reject or attempt to amend divine plans by relying on cultural norms instead of the directions of God. The safest course is not to reject or supplement the divine plan by human reasoning. Those who cannot accept the prophetic decisions and practice of the past should consider Winston Churchill's wise counsel quoted earlier. If we open a quarrel between the past and the present, we shall find that we have lost the future. Now, with prophetic clarification, let us all heed our prophet's call to repent, to change, and to improve. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can unite and bring peace to people of all races and nationalities. We who believe in that gospel, whatever our origins, must unite in love of each other and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I love you, my brothers and sisters. I want to help you. I invite each of you to accept the invitation repeated in our October conference to become more Christ-like. That is not merely to speak of Christ or think of Him or try to copy His actions. We become Christ-like when we have achieved what the Apostle Paul called the mind of Christ. Then we will look at others and love them and act toward them as Christ would do and as He desires us to do. With God's help, we can do this. I know and testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is communal and global outreach. We've just heard from Elder Dallin H. Oaks. After the break, we'll return with Dambisa Moyo for the macroeconomic, geopolitical, and social trends defining our world. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is communal and global outreach. Next is Dambisa Moyo, a macroeconomist, author, and global affairs expert at the time of this address, titled The Macroeconomic, Geopolitical, and Social Trends Defining Our World. Zambia, then known as Northern Rhodesia, was a British colony. Today, the country has 17 million people, and 50% of the population is under the age of 15 years old. Zambia is a copper exporter. Approximately 70% of the earnings that come through foreign exchange are through copper, mainly exported to China. I was born in Zambia, and I was raised as a Presbyterian. Throughout my life, I did not realize until I was a college student that I did not have a birth certificate. Because at the time of my birth in 1969 in Zambia, birth certificates were not issued to black people. That law changed in 1973. You might be saying to yourself, well, what has that got to do with education? Which is the theme of the topic um, of this devotional and for this period of the semester. And the truth is, it has a lot to do with it. I know, I know, you're asking yourselves, how does a girl from a landlocked part of Africa, a small country, find herself not just speaking at BYU, but married to somebody who was born and raised, or actually just raised in Provo, um, right here around the corner? And the truth is, the answer is both complicated and simple at the same time because the answer is education. Without the education and without the opportunity to get an education, I would not be standing here today. But more generally, my hope this morning is to present you with a whole host of global trends, economic, geopolitical, and social trends that I believe will really dominate and define the global future. But perhaps most importantly, if we're not innovative about addressing the deep structural changes that are occurring around the world, there may not be many more people with the sorts of stories that I've just relayed to you. My presentation today will start off by giving you a quick snapshot about where we are in terms of the global economy. I'll quickly follow on by giving you a bit of a a sneak peek into how we are thinking about geopolitical issues around the world. I subsequently will highlight a handful of social challenges and social changes that are defining the world today. And then I would love to spend a bit of time talking to you about some of the deep structural changes that I believe will continue to challenge the global economy going forward. And so parts of what I tell you today might be hard to hear, and it certainly will not be Pollyannish. 
But I hope that when you leave today, you will not take away a glass half empty approach or thinking, but rather feel that you're more educated with respect to the global challenges that the world faces today. And in that respect, feel much more energized and armed to go out and try and help the world solve these deep structural and seemingly intractable problems. Let me start off by talking to you a little bit about where we are with respect to economics. I start by saying that even before the global pandemic hit in earnest in 2020, we were already in a pretty precarious place. Economically, growth numbers over the previous 10 years have slowed quite considerably. And the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, in 2014 cautioned that on the back on the aftermath of the financial crisis of 2008, we may never again see the rates of economic growth that we saw before 2008. But in addition, and just to frame this economic growth challenge, which I believe is the defining challenge of our time, in order to double per capita incomes in one generation and meaningfully put a dent in poverty, an economy needs to be growing at 3% a year. As I stand here today, only a handful of countries are growing at that number. In fact, before COVID hit, the majority of developed and developing economies were growing far below that important number. Developed countries like the United Kingdom were growing at 1.4%. Germany posted a GDP number of 0% in Q4 of 2019. Meanwhile, across the emerging markets, the large emerging market economies, which are home to 50 million people, like Brazil, Argentina, Russia, South Africa, many places in Asia, were growing at around 1% to 2%. At stake are people's livelihoods and living standards, but also our ability to be active citizens in the democratic process. And more than that, if we're not able to increase the GDP pie and continue to pursue economic growth, our ability to create jobs, but also to enhance education and healthcare and to solve climate change becomes materially impacted. Now, if I haven't managed to depress you enough, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the, the political environment. Now, I'm not going to get into U.S. politics or us versus them. I think really what we need to take away are some of the big geopolitical themes that are creating a lot of consternation and concern. So, for instance, Martin Dempsey, who was the head of the Joint Chief of Staffs in the United States, basically has called this period the most dangerous period over his 50-year career. He's partly attributed this to the rise in terrorism around the world, but also the fact that the United States and Western society now has a rival economically and politically in the form of China, whose ideological, economic, and political beliefs are completely different to ours. Our ability to solve the big challenges that we're dealing with around the world means we've got to get across that proverbial divide and the aisle that separates people who have different views and ideological positions.
but beyond the issues of ideology, which I'll come to again later, there were other political issues that were quite worrisome. Across many democratic societies, there's been a clear lack of interest with voter participation declining. Here in the United States, low-income households have just a 30% participation rate in the political process. And furthermore, Freedom House, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C., has said there's been such a lack of focus on democracy that today 70% of the democracies in the world are illiberal and actually indistinguishable from authoritarian states. They have in mind countries like Venezuela, I imagine Russia, Zimbabwe, countries that are ostensibly democratic but really are moving away from what we believe to be a liberal democratic state. Let me move on very briefly to the question of social issues and trends that are governing the global economy. Of course, with respect to infrastructure, which is the backbone of economic success, the American Civil Engineers Survey, which comes out once every three years, has graded America's infrastructure, roads, railways, airports, bridges, etc., a D+. Now, you might think to yourself, well, what do you care? This is just about America. But it's not. America's success or failure actually defines where the world goes next. And to the extent that you would have a D-plus in your infrastructure basically does not bode well for America's economic future prospects and therefore the prospects for the world. But putting infrastructure to one side, there are now studies, according to the International Rescue Committee, that we are part of or witnessing the fact that we have the highest number of refugees and displaced people ever recorded in history, around 70 million people. And furthermore, it's not just the CDC, but also in a wonderful book called The Drugs Don't Work, before COVID hit, there was a lot of evidence of an increased persistence and arrival of a lot of new communicable diseases and much more resistance to the remedies. So as an economist and as somebody who's very interested in business but also very interested in where public policy goes, we are really in a deep, challenging place. And I'd like to just spend the time that I have left talking to you about some of the specific challenges and the puzzles that economists like myself are spending an enormous time dealing with. Once I've concluded these six items, I will spend a bit of time giving you some solutions and some hope for the future. I do not believe that this is the generation where we will see the end of society and humanity, and we've seen challenges before. So I urge you, through this all, to think about this really as an opportunity and a roadmap for education and not really a hope, a place for despair. So let's start with technology and the risk of a jobless underclass. At the turn of the last century in 1900, the United States workforce was 60% involved in agriculture, 60%. Today, that number is less than 3% 
less than 3% of Americans are involved in agriculture. Through push and pull factors, Americans moved out of the agriculture sector into manufacturing and out of manufacturing into the service sector. Today, roughly 80% of Americans are involved in the service sector and approximately 18% are involved in manufacturing. In much the same way that we've seen the diminution of jobs over time, what will happen when we see robotics and automation take over the service sector as well as the manufacturing sector? We have some estimates already. According to the World Economic Forum, 85 million jobs will likely be lost because of automation uh, globally through to 2050. Now, the great British economist John Maynard Keynes in the 1930s had actually forecasted this. He actually suggested that by 2030, we would have a 15-hour work week. And he actually posed the question, what will we do with all that extra time? And he concluded, he hoped that we wouldn't end up in war, but actually that we might contemplate God. Whatever we will be doing, wherever we will be, the fact of the matter is from a public policy perspective, we have to think about what happens when multiple millions of people will likely lose their jobs because of the speed of technological change. The second issue I mentioned was demographic shifts. Today, there are approximately 8 billion people on the planet. According to the United Nations, the world's population will continue to grow at a clip until we hit 11 billion people in 2100. India is adding 1 million people a month, 1 million people a month to our population. And the global economy is adding 60 million people a year, which is roughly the size of Britain. As I mentioned to you, my home country of Zambia, a relatively small population of 17 million, has a lot of skew. And it's not uncommon in emerging markets to find that although the populations are relatively small, although they can be larger, the vast majority, or at least half of the population, is under the age of 15. We have got to provide jobs and opportunities for that group of people. And today, 90%, 90% of the world's population lives in the emerging markets. Now, you might think to yourself, well, that's an Africa problem, or it's a, Zamb it's a Zambia problem, or it's a problem of the emerging markets. But it is not. It will be a problem in your backyard through disorderly migration, a very difficult thing to do, to have to move and leave your home and family and friends and context to move elsewhere because you're forced due to economic and political changes. But that might be the world that we're heading for if we cannot manage the demographics. I'd like to put the demographic shift in context. It took 125 years to go from 1 billion people to 2 billion people. It has taken us 60 years to go from a mere 3 billion people to 8 billion people today. We expect the world's population to keep growing at a clip. In places like my home country, it's growing rapidly. And we have to do something about managing the population growth, but at the same time thinking very clearly about what opportunities we can deliver for young people as they sort of come online.
It's not just the quantity of the world's population that's challenging, it's the quality of the world's workforce. According to the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, this generation of Americans, for the first time in the history of this country since 1776, will be less educated than the preceding generation. A survey of mathematics, science, and reading that comes out every three to five years by the OECD called the PISA study, the Program for International Student Assessment, has concluded that the United States, which used to be the number one, number two, number three in these subjects, mathematics and science, etc., is now in the bottom ranks, number 27 and 28 and 29. This is simply not good enough. It's not good enough for the United States, and it's not good enough for the rest of the world. As you can see, even in this live experiment that we've just witnessed with the development of the vaccine, the world is heavily depending on the United States to get it right. So we've got to actually make sure we invest in education. We also have to think about the deep concern that was highlighted most clearly in a McKinsey report a number of years ago that the underinvestment in education of blacks and Latinos in the United States is so damaging that it could put the United States in a permanent economic recession by 2050. At a time when there's a massive pushback against immigration, you have to think very strategically about how an economy like the United States can possibly think that it can function and compete longer term when we're underinvesting in its own citizens. I'll now move on to the area of income inequality. The probability of being born in a low economic class and ending your life in a high economic class, what we term social mobility, has gone down by 50% in the United States over the last several decades. Social mobility is the backbone of solving the income inequality problem. And it's very inextricably linked to the education problem that I highlighted a moment ago, that people cannot get out of their rut and hope to succeed in the issue of inequality if they don't have the opportunities to progress. But the income inequality challenge and the inequality challenge goes beyond American borders. According to Oxfam, one of the largest um, charities globally, the eight wealthiest men, and they're all men, have more wealth than the bottom 50% in the world today. So eight versus about 3.5 billion people. What are we going to do about it? Well, the truth is we need new ideas. Because as economists, we have tried the extremes. We have adopted tax and redistribution policies, if you look around places like Europe, and unfortunately that has not helped to stem the tide. We've also looked at more what I'd call right-leaning, supply-side approaches, approaches where we thought about keeping the tax rate low in the hope of encouraging investment and job creation. But that has also not helped solve the problem of inequality. To make matters worse, the number one and number two largest economies in the world today, the United States and China, have two completely different political approaches 
and two completely different economic approaches, but they both have the same Gini coefficient, roughly the same Gini coefficient, which is a measure of income inequality. The United States, as you know, democratic society, believer in liberal democracy, um, and also very much about market capitalism, is still the number one economy, but China is very aggressively the number two economy and has deprioritized democracy and has adopted a more state capitalist approach to its economics. These two economies, completely different in their ideological pursuits, have the same or roughly the same Gini coefficient at around 0.43. And the fact of the matter is one of the most popular questions that I get especially in developing countries, poor economies, what model should we pursue in order to make sure we don't have such a wide gulf in inequality? Should we pursue the Western model the United States adheres to or the Chinese model? And this is one of the big challenges we have to deal with uh, continually. The next area I wanted to touch on was on the area of climate change and particularly natural resource scarcity. In terms of natural resource scarcity, I've been very privileged to be part of a small group of 20, basically um, a number of economists and former policymakers and Nobel laureates um, who have an audience with the Chinese president every couple of years. President Xi Jinping, a few years ago, was asked uh, in this gathering, what kept him up at night? What was the worst thing that he worried about and the most important thing that he was concerned about? And in that meeting, President Xi Jinping said it was natural resource scarcity. That somehow over time we have convinced the world's population that they can all live at the living standards of the average American. And yet we were facing a decline in natural resources, arable land, potable water, energy and minerals. So that demand because of growing populations and urbanization and just the sheer improvement in living standards in the emerging market would not be matched by the natural resource scarcity challenges that I just mentioned. We've looked at those problems and we've been bailed out by technology. So there's a great hope that technology could do that again. But at the same time, we are confronting the issue of climate change. I would be hard-pressed to find somebody who doesn't at least say, you know what, I think we might have questions about the timing, we might have questions about the extent, but fundamentally we largely, by and large, agree that there's something going on with humans creating or contributing to the heating of the earth. I come from a region of the world where there are millions of people who do not have access to energy in a cost-effective and reliable way. In fact, according to estimates, 1.5 billion people around the world do not have energy in a way that they can sustain themselves, certainly not in a world of Zoom calls that we've become so reliant on. I had the privilege of taking some of my new Smith family to Zambia with me, and also to South Africa, which is a middle-income country, and they saw firsthand the challenges of brownouts or the reduction or the shutting down of energy. In order to combat climate change, we can't leave those people behind. This goes back to the opportunity for education and to transform people's lives over a period of time in a way that's meaningful and to pursue human progress. 
We simply will not be able to do that without bringing everybody to the table to help address climate change. I can assure you, as somebody who serves on the board of a large energy company, we're doing everything in our capacity. We're investing in renewables like solar and wind and biothermal and geothermal, biomass, as well as areas of nuclear generation four and a whole host of other new efforts to make sure that we can satiate the global demand for energy. But this is not a problem that's going away anytime soon, and we need new ideas and new innovation. Now, debt is an interesting one, because before we had COVID, again, 2020, every class of debt in the United States, government debt, household debt, corporate debt, credit card debt, auto loan debt, and student loans were all each $1 trillion separately for each class. This is unsustainable, especially in an era of slow, low, and no economic growth. The problem of debt has moved from just being an economic one into now a geopolitical one. China is the largest foreign lender to the American government. And these issues around debt, which have been exacerbated in the back of COVID, mean we have to come to the table with people and countries that perhaps we would not think about engaging with in years past. China today is not only the largest trading partner, foreign direct investor, as well as engaged partner from a political perspective for many developed and developing countries. But with respect to debt, China is now the largest lender to emerging market countries, bigger than the World Bank, bigger than the IMF, and bigger than the Paris Club. If we want to move on and figure out a future post-debt, which today is over 300% debt-to-GDP ratios, we have got to come to the table and engage. I should also just point out really quickly that with respect to debt, the problem with it, if you cannot pay it off, is that you're forced into corners where you might have to default. And I can assure you that that is not a place that we want to find ourselves. Productivity, I'll touch on as I run out of time here, very quickly, it's 60% of why one country grows and another one does not. The other two key aspects of, product, uh, of economic growth are capital and labor, which we've talked about, demographics and, and capital in terms of debt. But productivity is declining. The ability for each of us to contribute to GDP is declining at precisely the time that we think it should be increasing. This is a puzzle that's been going on for a decade, primarily in developed economies. There are a lot of theories about why that might be the case. I've written about this extensively myself. But the fact of the matter is we have to solve this problem in order to jumpstart and increase economic growth and therefore solve the whole host of problems that I've just outlined for you today. But I'd like to leave you with some constructive ways to think about moving forward and staying positive. Now, the truth is we're probably not going to be the great, ever going to be the greatest generation. I think we can safely say that there was a greatest generation, but we can try very hard to be the second greatest generation. And that's going to require us to be very much more open-minded, less ideological, for government to be much more efficient in much of the same way that government in this country 
actually helps to build the interstate road network. Government helps to build Silicon Valley, the Manhattan Project, and a whole slew of other initiatives where government worked in partnership with the private sector. We're simply not going to be able to solve these problems without efficient and effective government. But we also need to become much more aware of the trends that are going to define and really drive the world going forward. China is not going away. We have to engage. We cannot leave them out there to become a big rival. We have to engage. Technology, lots of scope for technology to move away from just being about social networks and, you know, basically um, consumerism, but really being a tool for solving public good problems like education and healthcare. And then, of course, there's an era, we're in the era of a green revolution. Our ability to think in a very smart and innovative way of how to, on one hand, solve the very urgent challenge of natural resource scarcity and climate change, but at the same time bring along the billions of people who are out there suffering under the weight of the decisions that we make every day. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was communal and global outreach with thoughts from Elder Dallin A. Chokes and Dambi Samoyo. Find links to the audio and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.